0: Welcome to the end of the Eightfold Noble Path, or at least the end of a four-part series on the Noble Eightfold Path. So, um, was anyone here at the first uh, of these series three weeks ago with Inez? That's, That's great. Anybody able to catch the whole series? terrific. Great. Well, um, tonight it's mindfulness and concentration. And um, sometimes I think we're tempted to think that this is the beginning and the end of what it's all about. A lot of us begin by wanting to meditate for reasons we're not clear about. But, we go to some meditation center, and somebody tells us to watch our breathing and after a while, we learn that we're on the Eightfold path and uh, and yet mindfulness and concentration are the last two things so what are they uh, my my partner was listening to earlier drafts of this and after about two drafts she said well now what is the difference between mindfulness and concentration and I thought well I, maybe I ought to sharpen up those drafts a little more if I'd gotten all the way through them and hadn't made that clear we know that it's a part of every aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path. You can't do right speech without mindfulness. You can't do right action without being mindful. And the ability, to some degree, to concentrate on what you're doing. And it's a wonderful thing to have as you go through your life the ability to be mindful. And when we sit and meditate, that's what we're developing, mindfulness and concentration. So what are they? And besides talking about mindfulness and concentration, I want to talk about right mindfulness and right concentration. Or another word for right is is wise skillful because you see it's not part of the eightfold path as mindfulness or concentration unless it's informed with an understanding of the four noble truths and motivated by the desire to be happy the four noble truths are that there's dukkha there's suffering in life. And the cause of suffering is clinging. And the way to end the suffering is to stop clinging. And the way to do that is the Noble Eightfold Path. So this is the right view to understand where the suffering comes from. And the right intention is to let go of that suffering. To speak or act or practice our meditation in a way that will lead to the end of suffering. Well, I still haven't answered, have I, this question of what is mindfulness and what is concentration. And I really thought I knew before I started preparing this talk, and I had given Dharma talks before about the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And the deeper I got into this, the more I realized I had to kind of come back to one of the beginning things that I do when I teach absolute beginners how to meditate. So here's the exercise. So were you able to stay with that sound until it faded away? Okay. While the sound was continuing, did you think anything? There might be some hesitation to admit that, because maybe you're not supposed to think. A lot of people think that. A lot of people think that that's what meditation is about, not thinking. And I'd like to just dispel that myth to begin with, because that's not possible. The brain thinks. It produces thought. That's its job. And our job is to work with that skillfully. So, if you think, you're supposed to sit down and not think you'll get frustrated and you'll quit. You'll decide, I can't do it. But if you heard that sound all the way through, whether or not you were thinking, you were concentrating on the sound. If you thought anything while the sound was continuing, you were mindful you were aware that a part of your mind was drifting away from the focus. So like I, I like to tell beginners, it's a win-win proposition. This thing that we do when we sit down and start meditating, we really can't go wrong except but just give up and take a nap. And sometimes that even is the right thing to do. So, if we stay with the object of our concentration, we build concentration. If the mind wanders and we realize, oh, I was intending to meditate and here I am fantasizing, we've had a moment of mindfulness and that's something to really celebrate, not scold ourselves over. Because every time we're able to remember and bring ourselves back, we're developing mindfulness. Just as every time we stay with the object, we're developing concentration. So. As I was saying, these two things become part of the Eightfold Path when we use them toward the goal of ending suffering. Now we all have the urge after we've been practicing a while to take the fruits of our practice right into our daily lives and it's proper that we do that. Um, Mindfulness, in particular, um, you know, for example, rightful speech, Um, that one of the times that uh, I embarrass myself, you know, it's when I get caught up in wanting to make some kind of an impression, and you know, I forget that I want to be kind. I want to say something that's helpful. You know, I want to end suffering and I what I end up doing is causing more suffering. Cuz you know, some blooper comes out and if it doesn't hurt somebody else, it at the least it embarrasses me. So we can use this mindfulness throughout our lives, but I don't know about you, if I take a look back at any day I just got through, it's on fast forward. You know, everything comes so fast and it's one interruption after another. To be able to stop and think about all the rules of right speech or right action before we do anything, how can we possibly remember that? That's why we practice. Because that's what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is remembering. When we're caught up in anything, remembering to come back. Come back to the breathing. Come back to the here and now. Come back to what's really important and what we really want to do. Mindfulness is the capability of the mind to bring us back to the truth whenever we become enmeshed in delusion. You see, We humans have thrived as individuals and as a species by creating things that are not true. Some of these things we call lies, others are inventions, solutions to problems, novels, poetry. One of the things that we've invented is an idea of ourselves and we cherish that idea, we cling to it. And almost all of our thoughts have something to do with it and we want it to be wonderful. But we have a fixed idea of what wonderful is. And the trouble is that that idea is usually really more wonderful than we are. (laughs) So this, this is one of those delusions. In fact, this is the delusion that really gives rise to suffering. This is the delusion out of which comes the greed and aversion that leads to clinging. So what's true right here and now is the sensations of the body. So when we start to practice meditation, we start with the sensations of breathing. It's always with us. If we want to practice on the on the bus or on BART, you know, we we've, we've always got our object of concentration with us. And the sensations of the body can help bring us back to the here and now and to remembering what's really important in those hectic, fast-forward times of life. For example, when you notice that your jaw is clenched or your stomach is in a knot or you're starting to get a headache, it, it cues us into Oh, I'm upset, there's something that's a little out of control here. What is the right view that I should take of this situation? What should be my intention here? And as we practice mindfulness meditation, we get more and more adroit at remembering coming out of the delusion, back into the here and now, clarity about what we're doing, and a little more finesse in handling the situations that some of the times we've caused ourselves. So, Buddha taught this whole course of mindfulness practice, from the first time we sit down and watch our breathing all the way to the final rooting out of the last cause of suffering. And it's written down. It's in a Sutta. It's called the Satipatthana Sutta. Or for those of you who want to be scholarly, there's also the Maha-Satipatthana Sutta, which just means it's longer. Well, no, it means more than that, but it is longer. (laughs) And this Satipatthana Sutta teaches the four foundations of mindfulness. And just to list them quickly, I'll come back to them individually later. There's the body, part of which is breathing, There's something which in Pali is called Vedana. A lot of people call it feeling tone. Then there's the creations of the mind, or mind states. And finally, mindfulness of Dharma, of what's actually happening right now. So this first foundation is watching the sensations of breathing and as we progress we, we begin to use thinking actually to direct our meditation practice to investigate our experience and to see the Four Noble Truths as they operate in our minds right here and right now. For those of you who are here for the talk that Ines gave, you may remember her saying that freedom lies in knowing the Four Noble Truths, not as a definition from a textbook, but in a very intimate way. And that's what this mindfulness practice that's in the sutta uh, gives us. At the end of the sutta, Buddha said something like, and I'm, I'm really paraphrasing, he, he didn't really say this, but it was something along the lines of, if you will practice this, for seven years, I guarantee you'll have freedom from suffering. And he said, you know, if you'll practice this for seven months, you'll have freedom. Okay, if you'll practice this for seven weeks. Okay, seven days and it will lead, this is the direct path, it will lead to freedom. Well, seven days, it sounds like it's worth trying. So, um, here goes. Um, Well, before I go into it, one note that I want to make, and that is that almost every line in the Satipatthana Sutta has been interpreted differently, in different ways. And, you know, we're all Buddhists, so I can't really say there's a controversy about things, but a lot of different interpretations, and uh, what I want to give you isn't true to any one interpretation, and I'm not trying to synthesize either. I just want to give enough of an overview that you can see this whole path. And uh, hopefully there will be time left that you can ask questions if if you can't, if I haven't done that for you. And While we go along, it might be interesting to notice how much of this you already know, how much of this we're already practicing that we've been taught or introduced to here in the Sangha or reading books or or going on retreats. Because it's, it's not all foreign. So, breathing. And we start from the very simple and we go to the more complex. The very simplest. Is this breathing in short or long? And then, is this breathing out short or long? And when we do that long enough, pretty soon we're able to go to the next step, which is staying with the breath all the way through, in and out. And then the fourth one is, and I've lost my place. when the breathing and the body begin to calm. At that point, we've done quite a lot with the breathing. And by calm, first of all, in the body, I'm sure we've all had that experience. That's why they say meditation is good for your blood pressure, you know, for stress reduction you stay with your breathing for a while and then this wonderful feeling of relaxation comes up. The body just calms down. And Gil has taught me to pass on to people, when that feeling comes up, enjoy it. Because it's very helpful as we go on down the path. So, moving along we go from the breathing to the body. And there's mindfulness of different postures. Mindfulness of sitting. What does the body feel like sitting? And at retreats usually they have you start to hear sounds and then notice the predominant sensation and stay with that for a while to investigate what the body feels like just sitting here. And then standing, lying down. That one's a tough one because the way the body for me usually feels lying down is asleep. <laughs> but um, then you go on to uh, movement. And again, on half day retreats or residentials, the teacher will say, when you get up, stay mindful. Watch what it feels like as you lift your body up off the cushion or the chair. As you shift your weight and your feet move walking. And then there are four questions when we get into actions. Four questions that we ask ourselves, and the first is, what is the purpose of this action? I'm walking. Am I... why? I'm going someplace or am I just doing walking meditation, going and coming back? The second uh, aspect of that is By doing this, is the purpose to lead to happiness and the end of suffering? And the second question is, this action that I'm doing, is it suited to achieve that purpose? This might sound familiar like right view, right intent. The third question is, while we're doing this action, can I remain mindful? And finally, can I do this action without falling back into the delusion of my ego, myself? Well, that's how to practice mindfulness in real life. If we can do it on such a fine level as we go through the day. But it's hard, so there's more to do in the practice realm. But I want to take a little pause here before I go on with the Sutta and talk a little more about this delusion of the Self because it's related to three characteristics of everything. Everything we encounter has uh, a nicha which is it changes. It's impermanent. Everything we see today will be different tomorrow. Maybe subtly different maybe radically, but the flower fading, the rock very gradually being chipped away by the dripping water. Everything changes. The second one somewhat related to that is that there's the potential for suffering in everything. And that's because we can't rely on it because it changes. And then the third characteristic of all experience is that because everything is in this constant state of change and everything affects everything else in truth nothing exists separate in and of itself including us. So, as we're paying attention to the body in this first foundation of mindfulness, we're noting that as the body moves, we we can feel these sensations of the body. It's a material thing. It's not exactly the same as us because we're experiencing it. and I don't know, you may have at one point been uh, instructed in your meditation in feeling sensations of the body to conceptualize them not in terms of metaphors or stories, but the qualities of material things like is this sensation hard or soft? Is it hot or cold? Is there movement? Rather than... So you say, okay, there's a hot, hard feeling right here. Instead of saying, it feels like I just got hit on the head with something. Describe it in very particular uh, terms, and that helps break down this identification with the body. And as our mindfulness grows along with our concentration, we find that it's easier to let go of the delusion of the self and of the things that we cling to just a little bit faster and ultimately letting go of of that one, that delusion of self um, is real close to complete freedom. Joseph Goldstein likes to quote one of his teachers that if you want to be a little free, let go a little. If you want a lot of freedom, let go a lot. And if you want absolute freedom, then let go absolutely. So, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha really tries to drive home this point that we are not our bodies. And he goes into some exercises that a lot of people think are kind of weird or they're really dated or, you know, they just, just don't want to really deal with them. They're uh, contemplations of unattractive aspects of the body. Uh, it lists 32 gross parts of the body and talks about contemplating post-mortem decay. Uh, the purpose of this is not to indul- uh, make us feel repulsion toward the body, but as I said, just to realize the biological nature of this thing, and break down the identification. And it's a good antidote to lust. Um, I have to say I've tried these exercises and it's very effective. Uh, on the other hand, we could probably just watch 10 or 20 episodes of crime scene investigation and it would have the same effect. Uh, but. Um, From the body, the mindfulness of the body, we can move on to this second foundation which I said earlier was Vedna. Um, I don't like to use the word feelings because it's so easy to confuse it with emotions. and um, What it really is is the affective tone of experience everything we experience, we have an immediate, very subtle, and completely involuntary liking, disliking, or not caring about it. Every single experience we have. We don't have any control over it, and it's instant, and it's very hard to to see until once we see it, there it is. Um, I put together a CD of a lot of different sounds with uh, phones ringing and the beginning of Beethoven's Ninth and babies laughing and um, just some beautiful harp music and just a few seconds of each. And after working with my beginning meditation class, um, this isn't drug court, it's you know people who want to be there. It um, for about an hour sensitizing you know sensations of the body, and put on this CD, and you could really feel the impact on the body of the sound, and then the immediate, "I like it, I don't like it." I don't really care, I'm starting to drift off into fantasy. Every single experience we have has this aspect to it, and it's terribly important because it triggers conditioned tendencies that we have to go into greed and aversion or delusion. And these are the, the sources of suffering. So when we work with Vedana, basically what we do is just watch it. Just watch it. Without judging it. Without pushing it away. There's, there's nothing wrong with pleasure. Pleasure comes up. Displeasure comes up. Boredom comes up. Just notice that. And what we see is this sort of flashing of like it, don't like it, mm, more, mm," you know. And one hour we could have a completely different response to the same stimulus. And we begin to see it's just there. It doesn't have to trigger anything. And as I said before, eventually we get more and more fine in our ability to break this chain of reactivity. We go from acting out in rage to maybe a little harsh speech. We can stop it there. Or we can stop it at the point where we're having angry thoughts. And as we go farther, we can stop it as we first notice the feelings of anger, or to that minute trigger, that very beginning of aversion of anger, and remember, what do I really want? I'd rather be happy than right. So the third foundation is the state of mind. And there are 16 listed in the Sutta and I'm just going to stick with the first six, which are the mind with greed or lust and without it. The mind with aversion and without it. And the mind with delusion and without it. And we just watch it. Again, not pushing away or judging. And as the mind calms and we see the, this flow of thoughts and emotions out of nowhere, back to nowhere, we begin to be able to see where we're sucked in. Now. A lot of these exercises that are talked about in the Sutta are not to be done on the cushion, you know, like the movement exercises with the body. And I think this one also lends itself very well to being practiced out in life. I really got a sense of this um, in driving when I was, you know, off the cushion and behind the wheel. Um, and for the first couple of years it was not a pretty thing to watch. Uh, I had no idea I was so petty. It was one humiliation after another. And, um, you know, eventually it got better. The, for one thing, my driving got better Uh, because I was really, you know, paying attention to it. And I was realizing that, you know, I was driving in an unkind way. And I just sort of shamed myself into doing it a little better. But also, meanwhile, my practice on the cushion had gotten better. And my mindfulness and my concentration had improved. And one of the nice things about developing concentration uh, uh, was pointed out by um, a scholar, a, a monk named Tanisaro Bhikkhu. He gave a talk on the path of concentration and mindfulness and he says that as the ability to discern these different mind states and what's really happening, as that develops Uh, Meanwhile, the factors of ease and pleasure are also developing. And he says that's a good thing because as we get better at discernment, what it usually shows us is that we've been stupid. Um, We've been holding on to things when deep inside we know better that those attitudes, those mind states, are actually causing suffering. You know, like my being angry driving, and then holding on to the leftovers of resentment. It just made me miserable. So, the ability to see that, let me let go of it sooner, So, mindfulness and concentration and the ability to put this to use in life, they all feed each other. It's just mileage. It's just a matter. If all we're doing after two or three years appears to be just sitting there watching the breathing, that's fine. Because we may not immediately be able to see how it's coming out, playing out, in our lives. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is looking at all the different aspects of experience. And probably the one that were the exercise from the Sutta that we're the most familiar with is the hindrances. These are uh, when the energy is too high in the form of restlessness, or too low in the form of we get lazy or we actually start to fall asleep, and doubt. And we've probably had some instruction on how to work with these. In the Sutta we also um, work with uh, good things, the seven factors of awakening which sort of lead into each other and they are, somewhere in my notes here, mindfulness which is required for investigation, which is what we've been doing as we go through the Sutta, investigating experience, which requires energy and in turn supports pleasure, which leads to tranquility and facilitates concentration, which establishes equanimity. And we investigate each one of these minds, each one of these aspects of experience, just as we did with the hindrances, to see what brings them up and what causes them to continue. Only the intention with the hindrances is to see how to end them and to prevent them coming back. The intention with the positive things is to see how to bring them up and make them continue. And for those of you who were here last week, that might sound familiar as the four wise efforts to cultivate the good things, let go of the bad things. Or as Thich Han puts it, water the good plants starve the weeds. So, um, there is concentration. I've been talking about mostly mindfulness, but concentration is a big part of it, and we can do something that's called concentration practice. A lot of times you'll be advised not to worry about that because it doesn't by itself lead to freedom. But I think I've made it clear at this point that it's a very important part of the path that does lead to freedom. I would like to conclude with a quote from a book by... Bhikkhu Bodhi called The Noble Eightfold Path. And it's available on the website accesstoinsight.org. When the course of insight practice is entered, the eight path factors become charged with an intensity previously unknown. Each is there supporting all the others. Each makes its own unique contribution to the work. The factors of moral discipline hold the tendencies to transgression in check, with such care that even the thought of unethical conduct does not arise. The factors of the concentration group keep the mind firmly fixed upon the stream of phenomena contemplating whatever arises with impeccable precision free from forgetfulness and distraction. Right view as the wisdom of insight grows continually sharper and deeper. Right intention shows itself in a detachment and steadiness of purpose Bringing an unruffled poise to the entire process of contemplation. So have fun. Are there any questions?
1: Yeah, I have one thing. Let's say, so. well, we're meditating.
0: We're That's yeah. Well, let's have the microphone so that's preserved My it. name's
1: Doug and uh, we're meditating um, a lot of it was really good but it was a time when there was a lot of traffic going outside and it's hard to concentrate a lot of the time I, I suggest you uh, soundproof this place
2: <laughs>
1: no I don't know <laughs> I'm just kidding but Somebody last week was saying something similar, and um but I was at a place last week um like a club kind of place, you know I was just drinking cokes and stuff and um but I was able to um tune out the outside noises and stuff like that, and they weren't bothering me and stuff and i didn't I'm a member of uh 12 step programs and stuff you know I didn't feel a need to uh, or even have a compulsion to have a beer or anything like that you know after coming to this coming to the meditation groups and stuff so thank you very much
0: thank you thanks very much you know I have a sitting group uh, on Monday nights and we're in a church at exactly the hour when the janitor has to do what janitors do. And uh, we've gotten to the point where we really wouldn't know what to do if he weren't vacuuming during the <laughs> <our> session. <laughs> if we're never distracted, we don't have an opportunity to develop mindfulness. So is everybody... Totally clear about what mindfulness and what concentration is. Yes. I would like to say this moment right now. Just just a second. We'll get the mic to you. Thank you.
2: Okay. Um, I would say right now, the experience for me is just an ongoing process that just kind of keeps growing and taking its own form of awareness uh with both qualities um becoming interlinked as uh, as I um, endeavor to uh, to practice it and it just keeps taking its own course. hmm. So Yeah. I think it's the most correct way to explain it me
0: great it's very important to have faith in our practice it's uh, I think every one of us at one point or another has a bout of doubt am I doing this right gee I've been doing this for a long time shouldn't I be moving along and uh, that's one of the things that I worry about in Talking about this Satipatthana Sutta because there's so much to it and it's a little daunting. Oh, gee, is it time for me to start thinking about the cemetery? Um, or, you know, should I be dealing with mind states by now? It's fine to let our practice develop in its own time, in its own way, and just to bear in mind that there is a road that goes all the way to what our goal is. uh, Yeah, that's at
1: the end of the eightfold path, right?
0: Yeah, the end of the eightfold path is—it's—it's it's not mindfulness and concentration. It's the um, liberation from suffering, right? And true happiness.
1: Cool. Thanks.
0: Yes. Mike?
2: (laughs) Sometimes when I'm meditating at home, I come to a point, this just occasionally happens, I come to a point where I feel like uh, I'm feeling attached to the meditation practice. I'm feeling some some grasping there. And I'm wondering, and and every once in a while, what I'll do is, when I'm feeling that way, um, I'll actually get up. I'll stop it. I'll just sort of just all of a sudden bring it to a close. Um, I'm wondering if that's something that's familiar. If there's something that you would suggest, um, Mm -hmm. what kind of approach do you have? Uh, What do you have anything to say about that?
0: Well, give give us a little more of a description, if you can, of what that experience of being attached to the practice is
2: well yeah actually it's it's about feeling like um like I gotta stick with this uh sit a little bit longer until I really let go uh-huh. yeah until so I really so if the feeling like I need to move forward, you know, and that that's that's actually what the attachment is to, yeah or or feeling like i um um like I need to keep going a little more you know.
0: So and the uh, bell rings and everyone gets up and leaves, uh, or and you're.
2: Well, that happens sometimes too. The interesting thing is that at home, I I usually actually usually don't use a bell, uh-huh. so I usually meditate until I know that the time has passed. So that perhaps that's what that's part of what what I needed.
0: Well, Boy, you know about. that's one of the toughest questions I've ever been asked, and I'll tell you why because. Um, there are times when we're really cooking and that's a good time to stay with it. You know, and maybe maybe we really are uh, getting insight into the way our minds work. And if we stay there even though everybody else gets up and leaves the room we can break through. And then the attachment might just be to the fact that, wow, I'm really calm. This feels great. I don't want to get up. So there, are, you know, there are different ways of being or feeling attached to the practice or to practicing. Um, I've got another way of doing it, which is all my own, and that is I get an ego thing about, oh, you know, I'm really into practice. So, I would say, good to let go of the last two. But that first one, if it really feels like we're seeing how the mind works. And by that I mean how suffering is generated and how we can let go of it or how the qualities that keep us from suffering are generated. I'd say stick with it. That's not a bad attachment. Great question. Thank you. And I think that's about all we have time for. So... Thank you and may the benefit of our coming together this evening serve our own liberation and the liberation of all beings be well